Holy Father, for one glad moment, it truly feels like we are family, strangers and friends alike. And listening to Janelle's story and witnessing her testimony, Lord, You really are able to start completely over again. And we praise You for that. Now in the Word that You send to us today from Holy Scripture, engage our minds, but interact with our hearts. Let us hear the Word the Spirit of Jesus would have for each of us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have some very good news this morning for homosexuals. I have some very good news this morning for heterosexuals. And because you and I are one or the other, it, it occurs to me we've got a win-win proposition going today. I want to begin with a story. It's a story about the skylark and the merchant. Skylark's not a Buick, it's a bird. It's a story from the Middle East, and with all the Middle East headlines of late, maybe it's good that we go there for a story. It begins this way in this book. One day long ago, over the hot sands of a Middle Eastern country, a white skylark flew in joyous loops about the sky. As she swooped near the earth, she heard a merchant cry out, Worms! Worms! Delicious worms! She hears the cry and suddenly she, it occurs, yes, I am hungry for a worm. And so she swoops down puzzled, not knowing that the merchant is the devil. Worms, little skylark, worms. Finally, in a loop or two, she comes down and alights beside the table of the merchant, cocks her head and listens to his chant. Tasty worms, come little birdie, tasty worms. She hops closer, peers down, succulent worms in every shade of the rainbow. Tasty worms, two worms for one feather, two worms for a feather. She looked at those worms, she looked at herself, what's one feather? Lifting that wing plucked one out, put it down on the table, and consumed the most glorious of worms she had ever eaten. She winged her way into the heavens, and it seemed that she could soar even greater. Well, day after day, she came back to that merchant. Day after day, that enticing call summoned her, and she would land, and just another feather, just another feather, just another feather. Until one day... Eating her fill, she prepared to leap into the air, but with shock, like a thud, she falls to the desert floor. And it's suddenly a cold wave of realization sweeps over her. While she has been growing fatter and fatter, she's been losing feather after feather, and now she is so bald, she cannot fly. Trapped on the ground, she looks up into the face of the merchant. Was that a sly grin that shadowed his face? In terror, the skylark ran off into the desert. She ran and ran and ran. It took her hours and hours. Never an 
her entire life and she run or walked so far until finally she came to that softer ground near the desert springs where before she had met the merchant, she had often gone to that hard scrabble earth to dig up the dusty brown desert worms. Now she digs with a frantic fury. She digs and digs and digs, worm after worm after worm, until as evening comes, she piles up a fallen palm frond high with worms. And then slowly, gripped in her beak, she drags the worms all the way back to the merchant. The skin around her beak had grown bruised and tender. Her small feet bleeding after walking so great a distance. Oh, merchant! Oh, merchant! Please, please help me! She cried out. I cannot fly anymore. Oh, dear, what shall I do? Ah, I shall give you these worms if you will give me back my feathers. And as the story reads, the merchant bent down and peered at the terrified Skylark, throwing his head back, roaring with a laugh, a gold tooth glinting in the red and setting sun. Oh, I'll take those worms, all right, my little friend. A few weeks in this good soil and they too will be fat and green and glistening. He unwraps the worms, tosses them in the hot, humid soil. But feathers, he laughed again. What would you do with feathers? Glue them on with spit? He wheezed and cackled at his own joke. And then he spoke, besides my little friend, as he reached down and grabbed the already plucked little skylark. That is not my business. Feathers for worms. Oh, no, as he threw the skylark into a cage. My business is worms for feathers. The merchant slammed the little cage door shut, smiled hungrily at his victim, and then with a loud snap, of his finger vanished into the desert night. Dr. Jeffrey Satinover, who told that story, he's a psychiatrist and an author, draws the following conclusion. I'll put it up on the screen for you to see. As our fable tells us, each time we behave in a certain way, each time the skylark exchanges a feather for worms, there is an important sense in which we choose to do so. And each time we do, we tell ourselves the truth that we are free to choose not to. Yet it is also true that with each successive step, we progressively lose the ability to turn around and yet are unaware of this worsening, insidious moral incapacitation. This is the devil's bargain we make with each successive step we take. At the end, it seems we are completely trapped and can no more undo the changes in ourselves we have thereby allowed to develop, indeed changes in the very brain, than can the leopard change his spots or the skylark buy back her feathers. From this trap, there may eventually become no escape, none, that is, without the help of God." End quote. So here's the question. What kind of a skylark are you? Are you a homosexual skylark? Are you a heterosexual skylark? Spending your life feeding that appetite one little feather after another until one day we awaken to discover we are stripped and shorn and snared for life. I said at the beginning, I've got good news for me. I've got good news for you. Good news for all of us today. So open your Bible, please. The New Testament, a book called 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 6. And while you are turning there, I want to ask you a question. Can you do two things at once? Turn and listen to this question. What would you think if you had a friend, if you had a, a roommate, if you had a colleague on the job 
who had a condition that is routinely, if not always, associated with the following problems. I'm going to put them up on the screen. Kind of mid, this is mid-semester at Andrews University. It's the right time for a quiz. Name that condition. We're going to call this quiz. We'll put the conditions, the, uh, the effects of this condition on the screen. What would you do with a friend who had this? One, significantly, significantly decreased likelihood of establishing or preserving a successful marriage. Two, five to ten year decrease in life expectancy. Three, chronic potentially fatal liver disease, hepatitis. Four, inevitably fatal esophageal cancer. Five, pneumonia. Six, internal bleeding. Seven, serious mental disabilities, many of which are irreversible. Eight, a much higher than usual incidence of suicide. Nine, a very low likelihood that its adverse effects can be eliminated unless the condition itself is eliminated. And finally, ten, and only 30% likelihood of being eliminated through lengthy, often costly, and very time-consuming treatment in an otherwise unselected population of sufferers, although a very high success rate among highly motivated, carefully selected sufferers. If, you, if, if somebody has those, what would you do? Now, there, let me add four qualifications to this unnamed condition. You're trying to guess it. One, even though its origins are influenced by genetics, the condition is strikingly, strictly speaking rather, rooted in behavior. Two, individuals who have this condition continue the behavior in spite of the destructive consequences. Three, although some people with this condition perceive it as a problem and wish they could rid themselves of it, many others deny they have a problem at all, violently resist all attempts to help them. And finally, four, those who resist help tend to socialize, <coughs> pardon me, socialize with one another, sometimes exclusively, and form a kind of subculture. I want to ask you, what condition has just been described? I mean, if you had a loved one, if you had a friend, if you had a colleague who had that, well, is there anybody here who said, hey, no, no, I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't want to help her. I wouldn't want to help him. Why? Why should I? Some of you are thinking you had the right answer and you don't have the answer. Do you know what that condition is? Alcoholism. I want to put another screen up now. Ask you the same question. If you had a friend or a neighbor or a relative who had this condition, what condition is this associated with a similar list of problems? Let me put, them, put the effects back up. Another list now. One, significantly decreased likelihood of establishing or preserving a successful marriage. Two, a 25 to 30 year decrease in life expectancy. Three, chronic, potentially fatal liver disease, infectious hepatitis, which increases the risk of liver cancer. Four, inevitably fatal immune disease, including associated cancers. Five, frequently fatal rectal cancer. Six, multiple bowel and other infectious diseases. Seven, a much higher than usual incidence of suicide. Eight, a very low likelihood that its adverse effects can be eliminated unless the condition itself is eliminated. And nine, at least 50... 50% likelihood of being eliminated through lengthy, often costly, and very time-consuming treatment in an otherwise unselected group of sufferers. Although, a very high success rate in some instances nearing 100% for groups of highly motivated, carefully selected individuals. Now, I've got to tell you just very quick, as with alcoholism, this condition has those same four uh, qualifications. Number one, origins are influenced by genetics. The condition, however, is strictly speaking rooted in behavior. And two, individuals who continue the condition... And behavior, they do it in spite of the destructive consequences. Let's put number three up there. Some people perceive it as a problem. Others say, hey, I don't need help. They deny help. Don't need it. Thank you. And finally, number four, those who resist help tend to socialize almost exclusively and form a kind of subculture. So what condition is that list describing? And if you had a friend or a loved one who faced that, would, would, would you want to help that individual? Is there anybody who said, no, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. No, no, come on. Let him, let him go. 
What's the condition of this also addictive compulsive behavioral condition similar to alcoholism? The answer is, you got it right, homosexuality. How remarkably similar the two conditions. But you know, as I looked at these lists, I thought to myself, what a difference in the way we as a public react to them. I mean, with one, with one condition, we talk with absolute clarity and conviction. We invest millions of dollars to correct it. And then with the other one, don't you do this too like I do? I mean, we're going to mumble and hem-haw around. And, I mean, there are people even who spend millions of dollars not to correct it, but actually to protect it. I'm thinking, what is this? Why all the confusion? Well, let's, let's go to the Word. You already have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 6. Let's... Read a couple verses here. Verse 9. I'm in the New Revised Standard Version. If you don't have your Bible, look up on the screen. Do you not know, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. It's interesting that both of these compulsive, genetically influenced, addictive behaviors we just read about are both listed there. Homosexuality is clearly there. Male prostitutes and sodomites. And alcoholism is there, the word drunkard. You say, hey, come on, Dwight, what, what, what is this? You started off saying you've got some really great news for all of us. This is terrible. What is this? Well, I want to tell you something. I, there, I, I can speak for nobody else in this building right now or any of you watching on television. But I need you... I'm going to be very candid with you. I have wrestled over this subject of homosexuality. There's no way you can avoid the subject. If your pulpit series, as it is this fall, is human sexuality in the third millennial family, how are you going to sidestep this issue that is so hot and on the front burner with the American public? But I'm telling may I just share this with you? As I have wrestled over homosexuality, I have suddenly realized that I, what's happening here is I'm being, at least me, being pulled from a, a quadrant of tensions. Four tensions. And I want to just, by way of personal confession, share these, these, uh, four, these four tensions. We'll call them like the north, south, east, west. So we'll call the first one, we'll put it up on the screen, we'll call it the north quadrant. What, this is the tension my heart feels. Now, what, what is this tension? The clear, unequivocal, biblical position. I have a friend. A male friend who was a homosexual. He's not here right now. But I want to spend the next few moments as if he were sitting on the front row. I have acquaintances who are homosexuals. As I wrestle with this, my friend will keep me honest. You know, I know there's a lot of discussion going on. This is a university, so these kind of discussions go on in scientific communities like this. Whether, whether homosexuality is, and alcoholism are, are genetically determined or are they genetically predisposed. You know, the press, because it's popular, the popular press, I should say, has put out a headline, and you've seen it, discovered gay gene. I've gone back to the research. There is nobody has discovered a gay gene. You are not born a homosexual by some gene. Now, hold, hold, hold it. Any more than you are born, by the way, a star player with the NBA and basketball. Nobody's born a basketball player. There are no genes that code for becoming a basketball player. I think the Chicago Bulls would wish, oh, if we could find that gene, we could do something with this team. <laughs> Sorry, guys, there is no gene. 
No doctor looks at, hey, MBA, WMBA, this girl's gone, this boy's gone. No, you no. You have some genes that code for height. Yep, there's some genes that code for quick reflexes, favorable bone structure, height, weight ratio, muscle strength, refresh rate. People born with these genes, if they choose to, have a much greater chance of becoming star basketball players than people born without these genes. But listen, if you are born with those genes, you are not therefore genetically programmed to have to become a basketball player when you grow up. You have all the genes, but you can say, hey, I don't want to be a basketball player even though I have all the predisposition. You can do that. Even so, nobody is genetically programmed to have to become homosexual based on genetic inheritance. Listen, they have studied twins where one of the twins is homosexual. You know that identical twins, identical twins share 100,000 identical genes. If it were in the gene, both would have to be homosexual. They're not. Oh, yes, it's true. Genetic, prenatal influences. Home and social environments can set one up with a predisposition, a proclivity, a leaning toward becoming a homosexual in the event of unfortunate life circumstances. But still, no one is driven by genes and nature to become a homosexual. I'm talking to my friend now, see? Which means that if you have become one, you can unbecome what you have become. Hey, listen, hey, don't you give me a little lecture. Don't you tell me that homosexuals don't want to unbecome what they have become. I have in their presence listened to their anguish and cries. And in a few moments, I'm going to read you some of the prayers they have written. Even from a homosexual knows this, even from a strictly sociological perspective, homosexuality threatens the survival of the species. The Bible is absolutely unequivocal. In the beginning... What is it? Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created humankind. Male and female, He created them. You see, the image of God is complete with male and female. Only complete with male and female. In the beginning, He created them, male and female. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So, you're saying, come on, Dwight, then what's the biblical stance on homosexuality? Look at folks. I'm not going to read the six passages. There's six. The Bible's not consumed with this. There's six. But I want to read to you, rather than go to those six... I want you to listen to Richard Hayes, professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School. We're talking about Duke University. We're not talking about a conservative bastion, by the way. We're talking about a liberal institution. Listen to Richard Hayes. who's written, and I'm reading through his book right now, The Moral Vision of the New Testament. It is a powerful, powerful book. He has a chapter devoted to homosexuality. I'll put his words up here on the screen. Though only a few biblical texts speak of homoerotic activity, all that do mention it express unqualified disapproval. There's not a scholar who will challenge that. The biblical witness against homosexual practices is univocal, speaks with one voice. As the foregoing exegetical discussion has shown, the New Testament offers no loopholes or exception clauses that might allow for the acceptance of homosexual practices under some circumstances. Despite the efforts of some recent interpreters to explain away the evidence, the New Testament remains unambiguous and univocal in its condemnation of homosexual conduct. End quote. Now, a much brighter mind than mine has said, hey, that's the way it is. Well... One of the tensions, that's why I'm telling you, I've got this quadrant of tensions. The north quadrant is the tension I feel on my heart, the clarity of the Bible's witness against homosexual practice. And by the way, it's homosexual practice. It's not person, it's practice. Now, there's a south quadrant, and I want to introduce that because I think it's only fair that we face this. The south quadrant is this. It's the strong pro-gay lobby's voice that I hear through the press, through the media, through Hollywood, ever clamoring for public acceptance and political protection of their homosexual lifestyle. 
Two events happened, and you had to have slept through this week to not notice these. Two events this week. Those of you who watched the presidential debates, did you see them Thursday night? They're doing much better. I'll tell you what, it is no easy choice. Those of you who watched the debates noted the careful efforts both of the candidates went through to avoid any prolonged discussion about homosexuality when they were asked, are you in favor of legalized gay marriages? Why were they so cautious? Why are they kind of, you know, what was the deal? Well, it's clear. Because vastly dis- disproportionate to their numbers, the gay political lobby in America flexes amazing political influence and social power. I- I'm just nonplussed. It's an incredibly influential group. While Americans, by the way, have been led to believe that 10 or more percent of Americans are homosexual, do you know what? Careful research. I've seen this cited now several times. Careful research now suggests that the numbers are 2.8% of males and 1.4% of females. It's not the 10% we've been told. So the the, the total disproportion is even greater. The pro-gay lobby... And by the way, do you remember Ellen DeGeneres? Does that name ring a bell to you? That was quite a discussion. Why why did it get so much press? Why was it always out there? The pro-gay lobby is disproportionately powerful, influential... Clamoring for normalization and acceptance of their lifestyle in American society. Let me tell you the second event that happened today. You might have missed this one. Dr. Lore. You ever heard of Dr. Lore? Ah, Dr. Lore. A very unusual mea culpa. An apology she issued uh, just a few days ago. I read it in the New York Times and the Washington Post. She actually had it printed on the back page of Variety Magazine, which is Hollywood's trade magazine. This October issue devoted to gays in Hollywood. So on the back of the issue for gays is her apology. Why did she apologize? I'll tell you why. Because her financial and television ratings have plummeted since her strong condemnation of homosexual behavior this last spring. She had no choice. She may have deserved their ire. That's not the point. Rather, her belated confession on the heels of falling advertiser support is evidence of the influence of this homosexual lobby. Folks, I'm not telling any tales out of school. I tell you, it's just the South Quadrant is one I feel as well. Any public discussion of homosexuality, I know, has to take place within the tension of the strong pro-gay condemnation. The condemnation is especially strong if anybody gets to the place to say, you can no longer have to do that. That's when it really gets heated. You know that and I know that. In an academic institutions like this one, institutions, campuses are particularly affected by what is labeled politically correct thinking. Namely, that is the thinking of the intellectual elite. And in a world of naturalism in the United States, where the supernatural is not allowed, homosexuality is simply one of nature's multiple choice options. Never mind Holy Scripture. Never mind a God. So I know about the South Quadrant. I want to put another quadrant up there. This is the East Quadrant. Let's put it up. The unfortunately deserved reputation of the Christian church nationally because of its strident and anti-homosexual rhetoric and response. I am embarrassed with the condemnations that have thundered from American pulpits and television ministries, pronouncing the scourge of AIDS as some sort of divine judgment on this hapless segment of society. It is no wonder the gay community has practically written off the Christian church in all its manifestations and expressions. Ladies and gentlemen, I remind you that when Jesus Christ raised this church up once upon a time, it was to be a hospital for sinners. Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus is unequivocal. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
You know what we've done in the Christian church? We've taken the emergency room. There are people here from the ER. We've taken the emergency room and we've turned it into a courtroom to indict the guilty as we determine it. It's just judgment that drips off of many Christian communities. What is this? Of Jesus, it once said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The church instead welcomes sinners and eats them. There's one more tension that I feel as a human being in America today, as a man. The West Quadrant, let's call it this, caught in the crossfire of the biblical, clear biblical position, strong pro-gay lobby, condemning church, caught in the crossfire. Now I want to see my friend sitting right there on the front row. Are the homosexual men and women of society and the homosexual men and women of the church. Renee Drum, who teaches here in our social work department, wrote her doctoral thesis on the identity construction among Seventh-day Adventist homosexuals. I read her dissertation this last week. I was moved by some of the testimony from her anonymous study subject and the prayers, their, their personal confession of how they have struggled. And I want to read. I want to read a prayer or two for you. These are all pseudonyms. Joanne. I spent entire nights agonizing in prayer with God, begging Him, please, Lord, don't let me be gay. I found myself praying, please, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but Your will be done. I find it amazing when I hear people who honestly believe that gays and lesbians choose to be gay. My God, I have spent 33 years consciously choosing the very opposite without success. Don't you ever say they chose that way. They might have embraced it once the journey begins. Nobody chooses to be gay. I promise you, nobody chooses to be homosexual. Mitch, I have prayed my entire life since age 13 that the Lord would change me. I didn't want to have these feelings. I didn't want to go to hell. I didn't want to be this way. Here's Sue. I resolutely decided that I could overcome this with God's help. It was sin and all sin could be overcome through Christ. I began looking for Bible texts to admonish myself. I'd look for promises of overcoming and asking my friends to pray for me. One more. This is Richard. I prayed. I fasted. I wept. Don't you ever come up to a homosexual and say, you know what? You're not sincere. You don't have a depth of longing. You could change if you wanted to. Well, he might be able to change, but he sure, she sure doesn't need that analysis. Nobody chooses to be gay. Caught in the crossfire of the Bible and society and church are real, live, young adults. Men and women who in response to their internal crisis have buried themselves in a life they no longer reject. It's an uneasy piece, by the way, that they've had to settle for. Listen to this. If you're in a male, for a 20-year-old male homosexual, there is a 30% chance that he will either be HIV positive or dead by the age of 30. One in three chances. HIV positive or dead. If you live in the 20 to 30 range and you're a male homosexual, the age rate is 430 times higher in your age group than all the heterosexual population put together. No, they know it is a very uneasy peace that they have settled for. So what hope is there for homosexuals? What hope is there for heterosexuals? I want to end with where we began. I want to go back to 1 Corinthians because we didn't read it all. We've got to read it all. And there's the good news. Let's go back. 1 Corinthians 6. We'll read the two verses that lead right into verse 11. Verse 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you used to be. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. I'm going to tell you, folks, that the first time I read this, I could not believe my eyes. Do you realize what Paul has just said? He said, this, hey, this list, this is what some of you used to be. Used to be. I remind you to whom he's writing. He's writing to the Christian community, fledgling community in Corinth. Licentious, licentious Corinth where anything goes. Corinth was the San Francisco of the ancient world. Male prostitutes, female prostitutes, boy and girl pedophilia, all in the name of the sex goddess Aphrodite. Some of you were some of that, Paul says, but you are that no longer. I'm saying, wow, something happened to you and you unbecame what you first became. You unbecame a homosexual addict. Because in the end, homosexuality is an addiction. Just like sexual addiction is for a heterosexual. It is an addiction. Dr. Jeffrey Satinover, who put the two lists together, by the way, we looked at a moment ago, in his book, Homosexuality and the Politics of Truth, describes the kind of addiction that must have gripped Corinth because it's what grips the United States today. I'm going to put it up on the screen. What we call the gay lifestyle is in large measure a way of life constructed around unconstrained sexuality. The emphasis is his. Unconstrained. No, no holds barred. Thus, in San Francisco, a popular magazine is called Anything That Moves. And Paul says, look, you, you, you unbecame all of that. How could you possibly do it? We asked them. How? You mean you once were, but you aren't now? How do you do it? Tell us. Ah, it's in verse 11. Read it again. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Ladies and gentlemen, mark them down. Those are the three longings of the homosexual heart. Three longings that every homosexual has. They're right there. You were washed. That's the longing of the homosexual heart to be cleansed. The longing to feel clean again. The longing to be washed, to no longer feel dirty and stained, filthy, contaminated, to, to, to not feel infected, to be washed. How does Isaiah 1.18 put it? As, so that your sins are as white as snow. You were washed. And then number two, you were sanctified. That's the longing of the homosexual heart to belong wholly to someone who will hold you and never let you go. Someone who will never abandon you for another. Someone who promises to be wholly yours even as you are wholly His. That's a longing within every heart. And then finally, number three, you were justified. That's the longing of the homosexual heart to have his story of the past buried and forgotten forever. To be able to live his life, her life, at peace with the present and with the hope of the future without fear. No more fear. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Ladies and gentlemen, can you believe it? That is a stunning truth. That what the homosexual heart longs for most can be found in and only through the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, there isn't a heterosexual heart here that doesn't long for the same. You want to be washed. You want to be sanctified. You want to belong wholly to Him. You want to be justified. You want that past buried no more like a ball and chain dragging with you the record of your journey behind you. 
every heart longs for these three. Wow. Several years ago, the American Journal of Psychiatry published a study that set the academic community abuzz because of its... Uh, and it's no wonder because... Of the, look at the last two lines of this study. I'll put it up on the screen for you. When homosexuality is defined as an immutable and fixed condition that must be accepted, the potential for change seems slim. However, now watch this. In our study, however, when homosexuality was defined as a changeable condition, you tell the homosexual, you can change. When it's defined as a changeable condition, it appears that change was possible. Ladies and gentlemen, there is an evil merchant on this planet today who does not want the Skylark to know that it can be set free. And so through a very loud and vociferous voice of a powerful lobby, the, mer the merchant chants to boys and girls and men and women. He chants, you were born in my cage. You are stuck in my cage. You will never be able to fly again. You are mine. And the journal says, look, if that is the message that gets out, that becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. They cannot unbecome what they once be became. And so they end up dying a hopeless and oftentimes desperate death. But the journal says, hold it, hold it. Let the word go forth that the evil merchant's demonic hold can be broken and that the skylark can be set free to fly again. Then the journal concludes, homosexuals can indeed unbecome what they first became. Wow. The three longings of the homosexual heart, the three longings of the heterosexual heart, deeply fulfilled through our Lord Jesus Christ, who Himself, I remind you, hold it, hold it, who Himself on that red and dark Middle Eastern afternoon stripped Himself before the cruel merchant and then pointing to a cage full of plucked, shorn, bald, dying skylarks offered His life in exchange for that entire cage. Was it a bargain with the devil? Paul ends this chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, with this solitary line, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Come on, folks. The crimson currency of Calvary has purchased every homosexual heart, has purchased every heterosexual mind. Which simply put means that in that purchase, I tell you the truth, it is the gospel. In that purchase, there is pardon and power to unbecome what you first became. Any compulsive addiction can be unbecomed. You can unbecome what you first became because of Calvary. I'm telling you. Some of you are so filled with hopelessness. Some of you are saying, I am stuck. I have tried to get out. There is no deliverance for me. Hold, friend, friend, forget that South Quadrant. I know you may not even agree with the statistics. Academic communities are like, well, we'll just check it out again. I'll be my guest. Because push all the statistics aside. Right now in your mind and heart, there is a voice saying, you know what? It's got to be true. It has got to be true. I'm telling you, my friend, it is true. You can unbecome what you have become. Do you think He bought you to leave you in slavery? He bought you that you might be set free so that you might once again in your body 
Glorify your God and your Creator. Don't you ever let anybody tell you you can't change. You can change through the power of the risen Christ. He bought you. (laughs) The price has already been paid. You tell that evil merchant, it's time. You fled that cage. Well, I push these notes aside and realize I'm not just preaching to the choir this morning. And there's some of you who are really struggling. And I don't want to oversimplify this. I've read the literature. I, look at folks. It, it, of course it's a battle. It's going to be a battle and a march every day for the rest of your life, but you can live a life set free in the midst of that battle. And, and you, you can't do it alone. You can't just go back to your, your house in the community or your dormitory room and say, Oh, God, deliver me once and forever. Amen. Adios. It, it just won't work that way. Compulsive addictive behavior, any kind of compulsive addictive behavior, is so entrenched. There's a physiology involved now. But the good news is that there can be a new template can be put over the old one. Psychiatrically, it is shown it is done. A new template. And you can live a life of freedom. Don't you let anybody tell you otherwise. Now, some of you say, I need to, I need to talk to somebody. I need some more help. I'm going to put a number up here on the screen. Homosexuals Anonymous is a Christian organization in the United States. It's a global, international organization. I've been to their webpage. By the way, if you want to do it all in private, you just go to the webpage. Go to, go to Yahoo. Because their web address is very complicated. Go to Yahoo and just type in two words, homosexual, Homosexuals Anonymous. You type the two words in, you'll get it. Click it, you'll go to their webpage. They'll give you chapters. I'm putting it on the television screen right now. They'll give you chapters of every state in, this, in, in, in Canada and the United States. You need somebody to journey with you. There's no point in you having to do it alone. But I'm telling you, my friend, right from now, you know you have Jesus. And He has staked His life on the truth that you can unbecome what you first became through the power of His victory on your behalf. I don't know who you are, but I'm telling you, don't you ever give up. Hang on. Jesus has the best chapters of your life still ahead.